Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Can we blame Cook for everything that followed? Is it the fault of the Englishman who met his early end in 1779 that Māori are statistically likely to meet an early end in 21st century New Zealand? This is not a biographical or historical lecture about Captain James Cook, nor is it a morbid tale of indigenous destruction. Instead, Indigenous Studies scholar and author of Once We're Pacific, Māori Connections to Oceania, and 250 Ways to Start an Essay about Captain Cook, Alice Tapunga Somerville, leads an examination of past, present and future, reflecting on the many stories we tell about Cook and his legacy, and what they suggest about the different futures imagined for Aotearoa. This lecture is the Michael King Memorial Lecture for 2021. We hope you enjoy it. Michael King Lecture has been a part of the festival for many years now, inspired obviously by the work of one of this country's great historians and someone who really spent his, his sort of scholarship and intellectual life exploring the question of New Zealand identity, ways and, and rivers through who we are, how we come to be that, what that tells us about our past, present and future. This year, I'm delighted that Alistair Pungasamaville, a lecturer in Indigenous Studies at the University of Waikato, is going to give the lecture. Uh, she is the author of two books. I'm just going to read this topic of the first one because it's not in my head. Once We're Pacific, Māori Connections to Oceania. And of course, the book that came out recently, 250 Ways to Start an Essay about Captain Cook. And what she says... I think is a description of a starting place, certainly a starting place for the book and for this, is, the, is she's interested in the stories that each of us tell ourselves and each other about James Cook and the myriad of ways in which those stories shape and reflect the different aspirations that we have for this country, depending on who we are. Alice is going to speak to you this morning. She's not going to actually take questions from the floor, but she will be signing books uh, out of this room and just up the stairs at the signing table. There are copies of her wonderful work there and uh, for you to purchase, and that will be an opportunity for you to interrogate the propositions a little bit further at the end of the hour. But for now, please join me in welcoming Alice Tapanga Somerville. Tēnei te mei ki ngā kaiwaka aire o Auckland Writers Festival ki ngā ringawera katoa. Um, tēnei te mei ki a Michael King, me tōna whānau. Um, tēnei te mei ki a Bridget Williams Books, who took a risk on a book with a very strange title. Um, e mei tēnei ki ngā um, wanaunga, ngā hoa, ngā tauira, um, kei kōnei. Um, it means a, 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 a lot to me that I have, um, my parents have travelled to be here. Um, I shouldn't have said that because now I'm going to start crying and any of my students who are here know that I, I cry a lot so um, I should have like waited till the end to say that. Um, and also my husband and my three-year-old who I can't see or more importantly hear right now but at some point if you hear a three-year-old I hope we'll all be comfortable just going with the flow. Can we blame Cook for everything that followed? Is it the fault of the Englishman who met his early end at Kialakekua Bay in 1779 that I, because I'm Māori, am statistically likely to meet an early end in 21st century New Zealand? I'm neither a biographer of Captain James Cook nor an historian of 18th century European people going places on boats. This lecture is not, in fact, about Cook himself at all. 
that's the whole point of the talk. And at the same time, I'm not standing here as a reliable native informant ready to provide you with a titillating sense of connection with pre-contact or other side of the story, authentic something, something. Today I'm speaking as an indigenous scholar whose research and teaching expertise brings me way more than I'd like it, if I'm honest, to the necessity of engaging with Cook and his legacy. Whether I'm teaching in English, Indigenous Studies, or Pacific Studies, I find myself unable to avoid talking about Cook. And to take a step back from the disciplines in which I work, when you teach anything at a New Zealand university, surely you have a duty and opportunity to think about the context in which you're teaching. That context for me includes things like how the legislation that both defines and brings into being a New Zealand university is passed by a parliament whose right to pass legislation can be traced in a single thread back to the endeavour. The logic and history of why I'm teaching in the English language despite being so far from the island where that language was knit together. Why the New Zealand university system and all of its structures from the spatial organisation and the scheduling of lectures through to curriculum and names of departments bears such close resemblance to learning institutions from the other side of the world and virtually none to learning systems that have been practised for thousands of years on this side. Why just about everything about those classrooms and what we do in them and who teaches in them are so mind-blowingly non-Māori, despite all New Zealand universities having really cool names in te reo and um, really nice glossy brochures with earnest policy statements. And why Māori students and staff have particular experiences of the education system in general and the university system in particular. So yes, even though I'm a literary scholar whose work sits at the intersections of literary, indigenous and Pacific studies, and even though the heart of my work and the work of my heart is self-representation by indigenous people rather than non-indigenous representation of indigenous people, and my research interests are in indigenous-indigenous connections rather than indigenous colonial connections, I do write and teach about Cook and I write and teach about Cook in an institutional context that I would suggest is inextricable from his arrival here in 1769. In 2013, a white American pastor, Rob Bell, wrote, what we talk about when we talk about God. He identified that the word, it's Sunday, right? He identified that the word God is used by a range of people to refer to a range of ideas, and the book, which became popular when championed by Oprah Winfrey, which is how I heard about it, explores several of the things that people mean by God and the stakes of those meanings when using that word. Bell's formulation is useful because it helps us consider not just the different ways different people might think about a topic, which is an idea that isn't actually that deep, right? We all think different things about the same topic all the time. Um, it feels kind of obvious but also how particular words, and maybe particular names, like God or Cook, can become code words for really different things, perhaps because those various things they're code words for are difficult to encode in language otherwise. And this is maybe why some conversations feel like they're happening at cross-purposes, or along different logics, or they just completely stall all the time. While most conversations ideally could be drawn like little Venn diagrams with overlapping bits between the people talking, where there are shared frames of reference or at least the same topic under discussion, some conversations could be drawn like little bubbles on a page, distinct circles that don't overlap at all except for the one word, the one name, all the people talking, uh, think they're ta all talking about. So what are we talking about when we're talking about Cook? Obviously, I'm not saying Cook is God, or am I? <laughs> 19, before an argument. Before getting to an argument, you must start with some facts. Here are some facts. In the beginning, there was Cook. By sailing around the Pacific, he created the heavens and the earth. If these are the facts you start with, you are already deep into your argument before you begin. With an argument, one, Captain Cook was absolutely the bestest explorer ever. He was a hero. With an argument, two, Captain Cook was a violent murderer. With an argument, three, Captain Cook was a sacrificial lamb, a martyr, a saint. With an argument, four, Captain Cook was a pedophile, a rapist, a misogynist. 
with an argument. Five, Captain Cook was the founding figure of our country. People in lots of countries make this argument. With an argument, six, Captain Cook was a man of his time. With an argument, seven, Captain Cook was a man ahead of his time. With an argument, eight, Captain Cook was a humanitarian. He can't be blamed for what other people did or what came after. With an argument, nine, Captain Cook was responsible for other people and for his own actions. And most of these sit on the spectrum between problematic and despicable. With a non-argument that's actually an argument. Captain Cook, it's also very complex. I'm going to sit on the fence. Whose fence? On whose land? Dividing what from what? You only have a fence when you fear something or when you're trying to keep something in. Or as a renovation show on TV informed me, when you want to upgrade your street appeal. Which of these or other arguments do you make about Cook? Is it possible for some of these arguments to be simultaneously held? Are some of them more dangerous or less realistic or more ridiculous or less significant? Are any of them more one-sided than others? This lovely Sunday late, after, late morning, I want to ask you to consider what you're talking about when you're talking about Cook. I mean, I could spend an hour here re-killing Captain Cook, no problem. Earlier this week when I was finishing the prep on this corridor, my husband texted to ask, how's Captain Cook cooking? And believe me, the cannibalistic cookery metaphors and puns and jokes just write themselves with Cook. I am more than capable of presenting the Captain Cook version of 10 Things I Hate About You. You probably expect that's what I'll do today, but I'm not sure that would shift our collective conversation along very much. I think we'd all go home feeling the same way about Cook that we did when we were brushing our teeth this morning. What am I talking about when I'm talking about Cook? 12 at a pie shop in Te Rapa on a rainy day. My 13-year-old nephew asks whether we were cannibals. The conversation moves fast and soon we get to 14th February 1779 when Hawaiians killed Captain Cook. Was he a bad person, he asks. We sit back and talk big picture. It's not just who you are as a person, although it's also that. It's also the consequences of your actions, the flow-on effects. I'm thinking, but do not say. Cook is the reason that you, my dear nephew, are the first one in a few generations in our whānau to speak Māori. These short pieces I'm reading are from a book I published with Bridget Williams' book late last year, 250 Ways to Start an Essay About Captain Cook. The book does what it says on the tin. It's 250 different starting points for thinking about Cook. They're numbered 1 to 250, and believe me when I say that you don't realise how big 250 is until you set yourself up the task of writing a list of 250 things. I had 150 and I was like, oh my God, I need another 100. In an interview about the book, one interviewer compared it to a book they'd read which was also structured as a list, but that book was a series of failed drafts to write a particular thing. And that isn't what the list in my book is at all. I didn't have 249 false starts before finding the perfect starting point for an essay about Cook. I had 250 different starters for the many essays about Cook. The last one, number 250, is too many cooks still spoil the broth. I would never advocate that we stop talking about Cook, and I'm a realist in that I know we will keep doing so regardless of what I personally happen to think anyway. But what I want is for my descendants to grow up in a country in which the historical facts of his connection with New Zealand and the legacy of how he's been recalled take their right-sized place next to all the other things here. I want to be clear here when I say we, as in I would never advocate that we stop talking about Cook, that I do realise this is a diverse audience with a diverse range of experiences and backgrounds. Some of you may be the leading experts or at least very well read on Cook's life or nationalism or the colonial roots of differential life expectancies. Some of you may be teachers, writers, thinkers who work at the intersections of some of the stuff I'm talking about today. Some of you might not be very interested in this stuff at all, but hey, it's a free event and you're here because <laughs> you wanted to see something this afternoon and, you know, who knows? 
So I'm not making assumptions about what you bring to this conversation. I use the term we in the broadest possible collective sense. We who are sitting together in the Waitakere room on Ngāti Whatua land. One problem with talking about Cook is we can't stop talking about him. But the problem about that is that when we're talking about him, we're not talking about other people, other histories, other ways of tracing our place in the world, other ways to understand what it means to have a particular connection with these windswept islands of ours. Two, with beginnings. There was never a single beginning point for the history of this place. It wasn't cook on a beach. It wasn't the confiscation of land and storming of Pariaka. It wasn't Gallipoli. It wasn't the pushing apart of primordial parents. It wasn't gold fields. It wasn't the arrival of Waka. It wasn't a lover's tiff between mountains. It wasn't a boat full of influenza docking in Samoa. It wasn't the treaty. It wasn't certain women getting the vote. It wasn't a fished up fished. It was all of these and more besides. Cook's arrival here has clearly been claimed and is continually reclaimed as the starting point in 1769 of what decades later became the New Zealand state. We know this because we count, I don't personally count the years, but somebody has counted the years since then until these particular years that have become moments to commemorate who and what New Zealand is. In 1919, a small event was held in Gisborne at the site of a monument that had been erected a few years earlier. In 1969, there was a parade in Gisborne with gigantic models, not only of the endeavour, but of Cook's own head. You should see the photos. It's just interesting. Someone thought it was a good idea. 2019 was, of course, the 250th anniversary, and we were all there in 2019, telling our various stories, rolling our eyes at people who told different ones. Today, I'm not going to open the Toya 250 can of worms that, at only two years old, hasn't yet had a chance to congeal. So, should we talk about Cook or shouldn't we isn't the right question. The question is, why do we tell the stories about Cook that we do, and what other stories might we be able to tell? We can't change Cook's proclamation. We can't bring back to life the indigenous people who died or suffered traumas from violence at the hands of Cook or his crews but we can be deliberate about the stories we do tell, the range of stories, the other stories that we remember to tell alongside and as well as, and sometimes maybe often instead of, Cook stories. 13, on a couch. The same nephew, many years later, he's a little kid. I'm reading him a story a library book called Horeta and the Waka. And as much he curls up in his PJs, I open the book and quickly recognize it's a version of the story written by Te Horeta Te Tanifa about his recollections of Cook's visit. A few pages in, Machu starts chuckling when Horeta describes the thundersticks. They're not thundersticks, Auntie Lala, he, he says. They're guns. I decide to check whether he understands what's happening in the story, so I ask him straight up, Machu, who are these men in the blue coats? He looks at me. We talk about how the European, like my dad, his koko, and veer off into a discussion that would have made the ears of Hobson Pledge members burn. We chat about how Machu's koko and nanny are both New Zealanders, even though one is Māori and one is Pākehā, and Machu's abba or father is also a New Zealander, even though he's from Eritrea. After dealing with the small matter of multicultural citizenship in a settler state, I try to redirect our attention back to the, this poor child who's been so oppressed by me for his entire life. <laughs> I try to redirect our attention back to the book. Machu, these are the first Pākehā men this boy Horeta has ever seen because they're the first ones to ever come to Aotearoa. He looks at the pictures and turns to me. Oh, I get it, auntie. I know who they are. They've come to steal our land. Machu identified himself with Horeta and knew that the presence of Pākehā with guns is logically connected to the theft of land our land. I've tried to think through our conversation in the years ever since. Hopefully by the time Machu's reading to his own nieces and nephews, we as historians and we as Māori and we as his whānau and we as New Zealand will have expanded the range of stories he has available to tell them. 
Yes, 19th century history is about guns and ropatu and land stealing. Yes, that history continues to play out and makes its effects known in my generation and in Matthew's. Yes, that history demands further and deeper attention always. And yes, Māori are connected to our land. But Māori histories are also about movement and travel and negotiation and agency and more besides. Today I want to share a few cook stories that I hope we're telling by the time Machu's grandchildren are growing up. Maybe some of you already tell these stories, and that's cool. Maybe you've never heard them before. Maybe you'll tell them differently. But the point for me is that we all know surely the stories we tell about the past are what produce our future. In 1998, Patricia Grace wrote in her novel Baby No Eyes, there's a way the older people have of telling a story, a way where the beginning is not the beginning, the end is not the end. It starts from a centre and moves away from there in such widening circles. I look forward to the day that stories about Cook enable our understanding to move in such widening circles rather than stories about Cook just shutting things down. Each of the stories I want to tell today are stories about Cook, in which Cook told as the beginning of something is set aside to enable another kind of story to be told. So one of the things you'll notice with these stories is that all of them are about restitching our connections back into regional and global networks that our national and nationalist scissors keep snipping off. I'm deeply suspicious about any claims of firstness. I've spent the past three and a half years working on a Marsden-funded project called Writing the New World, Indigenous Texts, 1900-1975, which focuses on Indigenous writers in New Zealand, Australia, Fiji and Hawaii. The whole point of the project is to bring to light the many Indigenous writers that were published in these sites before the widely accepted firsts in the early to mid-70s. The short version of the results of the research I promise, Marsden, I'll write your book as well. But the short version is that there are heaps and heaps of writers, especially when you think broadly about genre, side of publication, and the language in which people were writing. The conventional story of Māori writing starts with Witi and Patricia as if they are our literary primordial parents from whom all else is descended. Their first single author fictional publications are our literary firsts, we're told, our literary starting point, our literary origins, we whisper to ourselves and type into PowerPoint presentations for our students. Witi was the first man, Patricia was the first woman. One editorial for a magazine issue that included an interview with Ikimaira in 2014 enthused that prior to his first novel in 1973, quote, there was no Māori literary tradition. At the session on Tinoranga Tiratanga and publishing on Friday morning, Patricia Grace shared how Jackie Sturm had raised the issue with her about the problem of others always describing her, Grace, as a first. And, and Patricia Grace clarified um, on Friday morning she didn't in fact encourage these claims because they do exactly what Sturm described. They make invisible whatever and whoever came before. Now, before you start tweeting that Alice hates the most famous Māori writers, <laughs> let me be clear that this isn't in any way an attack on Tūwhare, Ikimaira or Grace, or indeed Wanera, the missing name in the lineup, who was the first Māori woman to publish a collection of poetry English, but you probably haven't heard of her because she didn't do it in New Zealand, and we do like our Māoris to be domesticated around here. <laughs> Instead, it's more an attack on the obsession with firsts. In a Māori context, thinking about something or someone in relation to whakapapa doesn't diminish its significance, but instead enhances its mana by positioning it in that larger continuum. The most obvious problem with thinking about Māori or Indigenous or Australian or Fijian, etc., Indigenous Australian or Fijian, etc., people that who didn't start writing until the first of the 70s, is that we don't think to look. If we assume no one wrote until the 70s, we don't think to look for or read the earlier writers. But I've actually also been reflecting a lot on the other effect of focusing on firsts, and that's that the position of first can also steal limelight or a microphone from writers that came after as well. In all of the places I've been looking at, we're so careful to acknowledge our literary grandparents that their immediate descendants, the writers who published their own first works in the 1980s and 1990s, kind of disappear. We love new writers and new generations, and we love our literary kaumatua. I say these things without cynicism and with aroha, 
but firsts make things disappear. The things that came before, but also I've been realizing the things that came after. We talk about Cook all the time in a way that makes so many things and people and communities and networks disappear. There are so many stories we could tell that are about or connected to Cook that don't just end up naturalizing the New Zealand state or defending the ways Cook was a nice bloke. So I've brainstormed the, the titles of five stories and then I'm gonna speak in more length about three stories. And I've got my phone with me, keeping me on time. My family knows that I talk all the time, so they're like, is she gonna get through this by 12, really? I'm gonna give it a go, guys. So first I'm gonna share titles of five stories that I have not written. Um, they're quite long stories, but I work in the humanities and I write poetry on the side. So rules about short titles are not made to be followed by the likes of me. Story number one, the story of how scientific knowledge and research funding is never political, politically neutral, AKA how Cook really came to make scientific version, observations of the transit of Venus and the indigenous death and trauma as well as the claiming of places for the British crown were a mere byproduct. Story number two, the story of Māori experiences of Cook and how these connect to how indigenous people of the American hemisphere experienced Columbus and how indigenous people of various parts of the Pacific experienced Magellan or Torres or whoever else. Story number three, the story of how Cook wasn't the first European here. It was Abel Tasman who gave the, these islands their first European name and whose Dutch background ties New Zealand to Dutch imperialism in the region, most prominent of which was in Indonesia, which upon independence began the ongoing process of violent human environmental and political colonialism and genocide in West Papua. I know, they're not all that funny, are they? Unfortunately, I wish they were. Story number four, the story of Māori people, but they're expensive. The story of Māori people who boarded Cook's various ships as the foundation generation of the massive number of Māori people who moved outside these islands in the late 18th and early 19th centuries through to the 20% of the Māori community who currently live outside the political borders of New Zealand. Story number five we could be telling much you could be telling his grandchildren. The story of active indigenous engagement with how we tell stories of Cook's legacy and the ways that popular media, mainstream publishing, academia, and politicians rarely acknowledge and often undermine the intellectual, moral, cultural, and community work of indigenous activists, specifically, and indigenous protests broadly. And here I'm thinking about the incredible poem um, shared by um, Ngā Hinipu Kōrero at the Auckland Speaks um, event as part of the festival on Wednesday night. So those, those are some long titles, and I wanna spend um, some time talking about three stories uh, in a little bit more depth that I think could be other ways we could tell stories about Cook. Number one is the story of Cook, and how hopefully they'll get lighter as we go, but I, I make no guarantees. We're gonna start though with the story of Cook and how it relates not just to colonialism, but to structural racism and white supremacy. For my Christmas present to myself last year, I bought a really fabulous book I highly recommend by Seattle-based writer Ijeoma Oluo. It's called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male Power. It's a great book to read, but I'll also add, it's a, because of the title, um, it's a great conversation starter to have on your coffee table, your desk at work. Um, or if not a conversation starter, a starter of rolled eyes or knowing chuckles, depending on who's noticing the book. I love the book, but one of the things I kept thinking throughout it was that it repeated something you see in a lot of American stuff, where things like racism, colonialism, and democracy are spoken of as if they've been historically produced and only historically and contemporarily experienced within the borders of that state, as if European representations of blackness and imperial engagements with indigenous peoples didn't both precede and exceed the US colonies or the US nation state. As if European thinkers and writers hadn't been framing the discourse about race for centuries before the US came along. I don't think anything Oluo said was factually incorrect, but there was a missed opportunity to understand things in a broader context. And also perhaps a suggestion or an assumption that such things didn't occur or issues were completely different elsewhere. In New Zealand, lots of us like to roll our eyes about this sort of thing and condescendingly mutter things about US exceptionalism, which is hilarious because we're actually obsessed with New Zealand exceptionalism. 
Before working in my present role, I taught in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney, where my students were convinced Cook left England to come to Australia. The fact that Australia didn't exist at the time makes this vision of the story incorrect or anachronistic, sure, but the idea that intrigues me most is the way that stories in New Zealand and Australia about Cook focus on his arrival as if, as if this was the sole and most important purpose of his trip to this part of the world. It's entirely possible here to tell a story about Cook being the first English person here who set in motion a sequence of events passing through the Declaration of Independence, the Treaty, the Assumption and later Delegation of British Parliamentary Power, etc., etc. And in this story, we end up with the bounded state we live in today. This story is connected about to a story about a man called Cook who woke up one day, left England to come to New Zealand. This is perhaps the main way we actually hear about Cook around here, as an essential part of our national origin story. We desperately need stories that explain how we connect to places other than London, even if many of those connections pass through London. Having taught in New Zealand university classrooms in which Indigenous students are a minority and also in which Indigenous students are a majority, I'm convinced that we all need to talk more about colonialism as a global, multi-layered and ongoing project, not just a kind of explanation of history of how we got here. It's really hard to understand what's going on here if we don't understand the context in which it's taken place and the logics of various empires. Too many students I've taught have never even heard of New Zealand's realm nations, Tokelau, Niue, the Cook Islands, despite the Cook Islands being named after the same dude whose name is used for the water between the North and South Islands here. We need to talk more about colonialism in general, but also about settler colonialism in particular. And this relates to places like this, where the form of colonialism, uh, the form colonialism has taken is not merely resource extraction, but also the mass migration of people from the colonial metropole to the extent that indigenous people now form a minority in our own homeland. One of the central ideas to the body of work around settler colonialism is famously articulated by the late Patrick Wolfe, who wrote that colonialism is a structure, not an event. This is why telling indigenous people to get over or move on from colonialism isn't logical. It's possible to get over something that happened in the past, but how can you get over a structure in which you're enmeshed? I'm not going to whip out my PowerPoint, relax everybody, and give you all my lecture on the relationship between colonialism and racism, but if you'd like to enrol in a paper at Waikato University, I'm sure someone at Waikato University is happy to take your money. But I do want to draw attention to the impossibility of removing race from stories we tell about Cook. But also, I want to suggest the impossibility of removing Cook from stories we tell here about race. The feminist post-colonial thinker Sarah Ahmed writes about the inherent place of history in any encounter. She says, encounters are meetings which are not simply in the present. Each encounter reopens past encounters. The particular encounter between embodied subjects always hesitates between the domain of the particular, the face-to-face -face of this encounter, this moment, this conversation, and the general the framing of the encounter by broader relationships of power and antagonism. I think we could, if we were brave, tell stories about Cook that get us talking about the devastating ongoing effects of racism in New Zealand. And we could start telling those stories by thinking about how white supremacy is reinforced when we refuse to talk openly about racism. We could use Cook as a starting point for understanding the broader relationships of power and antagonism, not just in New Zealand, but globally. Some of us are already doing this. On Valentine's Day each year, my social media feed is full of heartfelt posts from indigenous people around the Pacific thanking the Hawaiians for killing Cook on the 14th of February, 1779. We don't do this to be crass or to advocate cannibalism, but to connect with one another and express the ways in which we already understand not just our histories, but our futures are intertwined, despite what our respective colonial empires want to tell us. 
Yesterday afternoon, I was proud to stand for a while with my mother and daughter in solidarity with the Palestinian community and their supporters on Altea Square. Our stories of Cook here must not distract us from or blind us to many other sites and forms of colonialism. I'm seeking to suggest this morning that it's at least thematically, pos theor thematically theoretically possible for stories about Cook to make these complicated global links visible, right? We could talk about this guy to open up these conversations. Our stories of Cook need to explain why we need a Māori health authority and why such a thing is an apartheid or racist. Our stories of Cook need to provide ways for people who sit on city councils to understand why there is such a broad call for Māori wards. If our stories about Cook can't help us understand these, they're doing the opposite. They're helping us misunderstand them. On some level, the question of whether Captain James Cook was or wasn't personally racist is kind of irrelevant. Whether you personally would accept a friend request from him on Facebook or follow him on Twitter because you think he was actually a nice guy is entirely up to you. But what we do know is that his visit here in 1769 wrenched this place into an already developing British imperial world, which was just one strand of broader European imperial networks. And these both underpinned and continue to have a life in all forms of structural racism here. Number two, the story of how these islands are a part of the Pacific. Speaking of structural racism, I work at the University of Waikato. <laughs> at the Faculty of Māori and Indigenous Studies, where I've worked since the beginning of 2017, we have a subject students can study called Pacific and Indigenous Studies, which means they graduate with training in the two separate disciplines of Pacific Studies and Indigenous Studies, and importantly, they understand the important ways these disciplines do and don't relate to each other. It's great to see Dr. Jess Pasisi, a new way and postdoc based with us at IFMAS, who teaches um, significantly into this program and has been an important part of it coming about. She's now silently sending me messages about how much she hates me for picking her out. <laughs> in Passes 100, our foundation paper, we start with the connections between Māori and the Pacific region, as well as the connections between the Pacific and Aotearoa. These are two of my favourite lectures to give to the first years because they often end up helping the Māori and Pacifica students see each other with new eyes. And also because, actually, so many students live in worlds in which Māori and Pacific aren't tucked away in neat little boxes apart from each other from which the only view is the state. And because the lectures challenge so much of the logic of national narratives which shout at them, regardless of what they experience in their own quiet lives, like many people, I first realised the significance of Tupaya and the story of Māori encounters with Cook from reading Anne Salmon's Trial of the Cannibal Dog, an expansive text that was published to put it in context for me when I was just over halfway through my PhD. Because I studied for my doctorate in the US, where the PhD takes several years and includes a bunch of coursework, learning two languages, and a whole lot of other stuff before you get to decide what your dissertation or your thesis is going to be about, I'd just gotten underway with my research and thinking on my thesis by this halfway point. My focus for my dissertation was on what I called comparative context of Māori writing in English because I was interested in what happens when we think about Māori writing as Pacific literature, Indigenous literature, post-colonial literature, or New Zealand literature. In that order, you are now familiar with my table of contents. Although I was enrolled in Cornell, which was in, up, in Ithaca in upstate New York, by my fourth year, I really started missing the ocean, so I moved to Hawaii. I was part of some really wonderful communities in Ithaca, including the community around the long-established American Indian program, which was one of the main reasons I'd gone to that university in the first place, and informal networks of New Zealanders at Cornell, which meant I made a soft but invigorating landing when I first arrived in Ithaca in the vibrant social and intellectual posse of Michelle Allery and Anne Lydon, now based in Toronto, and my flatmates from my first year, Jaleesa Gracewood and Richard Easter. Where are you guys? Are they here? Hello. <laughs> We're here today having relocated to Auckland after post-Ithaca stints in New York City and New Haven. I often think of the evenings spent with all of them 
over Kai in our respective lounges during my first semester at Cornell, three Pākehā from three very different backgrounds, one Tongan and one Māori, to a function not only as a great social and eating space, but also an additional graduate-level course in thinking critically about New Zealandness. But they all left, and in Ithaca I was landlocked, and I wanted to be near more people who'd heard of where I came from, I also, at the time, thought this would be my one chance to be in the unique and rich intellectual space of the University of Hawaii at Manoa before I moved home and lived in New Zealand for the rest of my life. Anyone who actually knows how the rest of my life worked out knows this is hilarious because it turns out I keep jumping between New Zealand and overseas uh, for the rest of my career. Funnily enough, I actually ended up returning to that university, UH, as an associate professor back in 2012. But at the time, I was like being all dramatic, like, I will move home forever. I will never leave the homeland. This is my one chance to live in Hawaii, which is cool. I had randomly, not that I believe in such a thing, of course, been introduced by Robert Sullivan to three fabulous Hawaiian writers and literary scholars, Kuoloha Ho'omanawanui, Kaimi Pono Kaivi Kahumoku, and Brandy Nalani McDougall, when I'd been on a research trip in Auckland the year before. At that time, Robert was teaching in Hawaii too. So I had this sense, just from like one dinner on Queen Street, that in Hawaii were conversations I wanted to be a part of. So thanks to some additional mobility enabled by a Fulbright Award, I flew to Hawaii in mid-2003 and spent a year living in a tiny room and writing my first full thesis draft on a blueberry clamshell laptop. I know that ages me for the, ge the, the like tech geeks in the room. I didn't have a formal affiliation with the university, although I'm grateful for the way that less official connections provided me with the resources and networks I craved. A senior Samoan scholar in English, Sina Vayana, went on sabbatical and let me use her office, and the Centre for Pacific Island Studies gave me a card that enabled access to the library. The first week I got to Honolulu, I stayed with the parents of a guy who went to university with Lauren, my downstairs neighbour in Ithaca. We were very close. They generously let me stay in their downstairs spare room while I found a place to rent. After I'd been there for a few days and realised the enormity of stretching an Ithaca budget across an even extremely modest Honolulu life, I realised this had been a really stupid idea and I should stop being so spontaneous and theatrical in my life and doing things like moving to Hawaii to feel some kind of vibe, intellectual, social or, or cultural. I wonder what to do. <laughs> Should I move back to, Hawaii, to Ithaca? Should I move to New Zealand? And I thought I might as well at least calm down by reading the stack of books I dragged back to their little guest room from the library. I picked up a book called Islands and Empires by Ernest Dodge and read. In the course of his circumnavigation and survey of New Zealand, Cook was in constant contact with the Maoris. Sick. Um, not in the sense that my young nephew means sick, like cool Maoris. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's, that's just how Dodge rolled, that's fine. Beads and nails were good currency for fish and sweet potatoes, but curiously enough, large sheets of tapa obtained earlier at Tahiti were the best trade articles and were valued more highly by the New Zealanders than anything else that the English could offer. I sat there, blinked, and read again. In the course of his circumnavigation and survey of New Zealand, Cook was in constant contact with the Māoris. Beads and nails were good currency for fish and sweet potatoes, but curiously enough, large sheets of tapa obtained earlier at Tahiti were the best trade articles and were valued more highly by the New Zealanders than anything else the English could offer. The author decided the next sentence after this one should be the one that clarified what this meant for Cook's side of the interaction. So he wrote, thus began the first inter-island trade in native products by white men in the Pacific. <laughs> but I had a sudden rush of realizing this wasn't the only possible next sentence, that the story could continue by considering why and how the Maoris, my people, connected more with tapa than with beads and nails. And I have more slowly come to realize over the almost two decades since reading Dodge's phrase, curiously enough, that the phrase is an apt, total, totally understated euphemism for the gaping chasm between indigenous and non-indigenous scholarly, cultural, and political conversations. Curiously enough, what I write about is not for me, just a matter of curiosity. 
I find it astounding that he wrote a sentence about that for me was a fascinating juxtaposition of worldviews, values and networks, where British expectations of what Māori would value were not just not met because Māori didn't like stuff from other places, but weren't met because there was another whole system of value taking place that we glimpse in the reaction to the tapa. And then his next sentence was, so anyway, back to the interesting thing, which is white men and money, I find it astounding but I don't want to be derailed by Dodge, just as I don't want to cook to play too big a part in my or our story. I knew in that moment, reading those lines in Dodge's book, that I was in the right place to write my dissertation. It felt like a tohu, that there was a place for storytellers that didn't think stories about Cook in New Zealand were all best treated as, treated as explanations for new knowledge about white men. I kept reflecting on this insight, and then Salmon's book came out, and I finished the PhD, in which one chapter I not only traced the Tupper reconnection story as a way to writing about the I traced the Tupper reconnection story as a way to writing about the instinctive relationship between Māori and the Pacific region. The place of Tupaya in revised stories of Cook has been incredibly productive for many of us. Shortly after I moved back to New Zealand that first time to take up a position at Victoria, I saw Michael Tuffrey's first contact exhibition at Pātaka in which he painterishly rethinks, reclaims, reimagines and recasts Cook, but also Tupaya, and I was particularly taken by the way Tuffrey added Tupaya's perspective into how we engage Tupaya's famous painting of exchange between Koda and Tapa uh, between Banks and a Māori man in 1769. You guys know the picture I'm talking about, eh? There's like a guy in a blue coat and he's holding out something that everyone thought was a piece of paper but it turns out it's tapa because no one thought it would be tapa because wouldn't it be paper? And then there's like a Māori guy with a coda, right? They're doing their little exchange. And we know now that, that Tupaya painted that. Banks was asked later in his life about the moment of exchange depicted in Tupaya's painting and he responded by recalling an exchange of coda for nails rather than tapa which beautifully and violently demonstrates the power of European assumptions about colonial encounters and the way these assumptions can be held even in the face of usually acceptable forms of evidence found in colonial archives. How are we meant to remember the painting representing the exchange for tapa that Māori valued most highly in that moment of encounter when Banks himself, the dude who was there, had forgotten it by the end of his life? False memories that evacuate the presence of indigenous people, products and networks have been a bit of a theme in these islands. The late Tongan thinker and writer Epeluho Ofa, whose thinking is central to Pacific studies as a discipline and to Pacific studying people in so many places, clarifies the ways in which colonialism, and Cook specifically actually, has chopped the dynamic networks of our region into small discrete parts and how rethinking mobility and connection can help restore the sense of region to this region. Hoofa writes, the contemporary process of what may be called world enlargement that's carried out by tens of thousands of ordinary Pacific Islanders right across the ocean, making nonsense of all national and economic boundaries, borders that have been defined only recently, crisscrossing an ocean that had been boundless for ages before Captain Cook's apotheosis. So, when I lecture the first years in Passus 100 about Māori connections to the region, we don't just look down from drone view at maps of a region and little arrows showing human migration, language families, oral traditions, mitochondrial DNA, and the distribution of particular kinds of pottery, or chickens, or pigs, or dogs, although we do look at all of them as well. We also look from beach view at the moment at which Māori connected with Tupaya and the tapa the profound change to how we as Māori can recall who we are when we shift our attention to the state, from the state for long enough to nurture our regional connections inspired my first book in 2012, Once We're Pacific, Māori Connections to Oceania. I'm deeply committed to thinking about what's possible when we as Māori push ourselves to remember in meaningful ways that New Zealand has only been our key site of reference for the blink of an eye in the context of the stretch of time humans have been in this region. I actually opened that book um, with words from Cook's own journal, which then ended up, ended up being, I can't, I can't be turning to Banks, because then I actually forgot about that when I then was asked to write about Cook. 191, with tapa, 
I chastise myself for taking on this task. Who am I to write about Cook? I've never written about him before. Then I realise this isn't true. His words are the very first words of my book, Once We're Pacific. I was intrigued and inspired by his description of still existing paper mulberry in Aotearoa and Māori responses to the Tahitian tapa they saw on the Endeavour in 1769. I quote James. We met with about half a dozen cloth plants, being the same as the inhabitants of the islands lying within the tropics make their finest cloth on. This plant must be very scarce among them. I mean, hello, it's cold here. Um, as the cloth is made, as the cloth made from it, <laughs> a little bit like Patricia Grace who made the comment that the, <laughs> the, old, the old words get a bit smaller as you get older, but this is because the words are smaller in here. <laughs> as the cloth made from it is only worked in small pieces by way of ornaments at their ears, and even this we have seen but very seldom. Their knowing the use of this sort of cloth doth in some measure account for the extraordinary fondness. I love that phrase, the extraordinary fondness they've showed for it. Above every other thing we had to give them, even a sheet of white paper is of more value than so much English cloth of any sort, whatever. I say to the Passus 100 students, and I say to you today, the painting by Tupaya depicting Māori engagement with Pacific Tapa is something to remember when the state makes us fight each other for crumbs. But Tupaya's very presence that enabled him to paint the picture in the first place is also the evidence you can tuck away up in your sleeve for the next time someone tries to tell you that there was ever an historical period in these islands after Cook's arrival during which everyone was either Māori or European. Non-Māori Pacific people have literally been here as long as any Pākehā person's ancestors have been here, as long as English people have been here. This might seem like quite a small point to be so dramatic about, but I hear this idea all the time that New Zealand is somehow a country that was really produced by the relationship of two peoples, Māori and Pākehā, and then some random beige people showed up in the later 19th or mid-20th centuries, and now we have to try and figure out how to kind of pull them in from the edges and make it all kind of look cool. I even hear it loudly said or quietly underpinning ideas about the treaty. This idea that Māori signed a treaty with Pākehā rather than with the Crown. I hear people thinking that biculturalism is a tool of accounting in which the counters are cultured, one and two, so that's biculturalism. Instead of biculturalism being an analysis of diplomacy in which we clarify the two parties involved in the agreement, Māori and the Crown, <laughs> Māori and non-Māori. I cannot tell you how many times this idea then seeps into bizarre suggestions that Māori commitments to things Māori are myopic or racist because what about all the Pacific Islanders or Asians or whatever other group of non-white people are scapegoated to reinforce white supremacy? But what about multiculturalism is the fervent cry of anti-Indigenous white supremacists everywhere. When I was prepping this lecture, I remembered that in a footnote to my PhD, I also took my first steps towards more metaphorically working with this dodgy moment. I'm sorry, the guy that wrote the book was dodge. I had to call it dodgy at some point. Moment of Māori connection with the region. In a footnote of my PhD, I wrote, when Māori first came into contact with Cook's ships, they did not recognise them as being captained by Cook. To Māori, it was apparent that Tupaya, the Tahitian explorer who travelled with Cook and provided translation as well as navigational services, was actually in charge. I'm grateful to Robert Sullivan for pointing this out to me and for suggesting that I consider its place in this metaphor. I regret I'm still, I was unsure then, still unsure as to exactly how this part of the story fits within my allegory, but I wonder if it emphasises the role of oceanic practitioners and scholars already operating within the university system. It's their ability to operate within many knowledge spheres that earns them not only a place on the ship in the university, Tupaya was highly re respected by the Europeans on board, especially by Cook, actually, but also recognition of a kind of standing from within the academic structure. It's not for us to second-guess Māori and chuckle at their innocence, that they didn't get it, that Cook was the real captain. For Māori, Tupaya was in that position. This is not, of course, though, to naively downplay the issue of power in the situation. Just as Tupaya was ultimately at the mercy of Cook, so too oceanic scholars are ultimately, even if they occupy crucial roles, at the mercy of the institution. 
I'm keeping it on time, Mum. We're good. I've got five minutes. A few years later, I thought about this metaphor again and wrote a poem as I sat in a lecture theatre at the University of Auckland listening to the Tahitian scholar Titawa Porsche speaking in French, a language I can't understand, about Tahitian writing. Titawa's ship for Titawa Porsche. Another time we saw you, you arrived on your ship, loaded with tapa and other gifts from your home. You spent time talking genealogy, catching up and trading stories with relatives you hadn't seen for generations. You came with tapa and sheets of impossible size, proof of what we'd thought were grandparents' myths about our shreds of paperback stories of Hawaii. Hawaii. We knew you'd brought the ship to come and find us. Next time Cook came, we asked him where you were. We've waited for your return. This time, your ship was shaped like a lecture theatre. Once again, it was loaded with things from your home. Though they all spoke with confidence about the cargo in their hold, and I couldn't understand a word you said, I know this is Titsawa's ship. One day, Ewa, this is the problem with poems make me cry, thinking about Titsawa. One day, Ewa, this won't be a ship anymore. One day, this will be our waka. Um, in the interest of time, I'm now going to skip over the third story I was going to share with you, which was called The Story of How Creative People Have Already Been Telling Different Stories About Cook and Its Aftermath. But can I just say, I think we can all agree, Tusiata Avia just won a really big prize and then read her poem about, about Cook. So I think we can all be in agreement here with me. We just like short circuit this one and go, creative people have already been doing this stuff, thinking this stuff, setting the standard for what these conversations can look like. I want to finish with a short and ridiculous, but hopefully memorable metaphor. I do definitely deserve a major side-eye for this metaphor. It's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was trying to be superwoman, mama to a baby, wife to a husband, member of a whanau, friend, scholar, poet, associate dean academic for a faculty, you name it. I was completely failing at most of the things Patricia Grace has so wisely shared in her sessions at this festival. I was not remembering to have a life outside of work, and I was not even eating vegetables. So anyway, this was her tip. So anyway, I decided to engage in a bit of Pinterest-inspired self-care, because some days it's easier to paint your nails than to single-handedly fix up the patriarchal racist colonial university sector. <laughs> and I decided to treat myself to some fancy shampoo, which in my word means splashing out about 15 bucks a bottle at the supermarket instead of getting the cheapest cheap one on special. So I splashed out and I got a lovely new shampoo and conditioner combo and after a few days I thought, hmm, this is unfortunate. My flash, very expensive, $15 a bottle shampoo and conditioner, making my hair a little bit less nice than the cheap ones I usually use. A couple more days and I decided to investigate. Maybe these were aimed at people with really different hair from me. Well, it turned out that for the past week, I had been washing my hair with conditioner and then picking up the other bottle and conditioning it with conditioner. I had bought two identical bottles instead of the two different things I needed, and I hadn't noticed at all. Clearly, this reflects on me really badly as a human. You might be wondering how I managed to write anything at all with such bad reading skills. We could go there. But I want us to divert our attention to something else, the fact it took so long for me to notice and then to do anything about it, even though clearly, actually, it hadn't been doing what I wanted it to from that first session in the shower. It took so long to notice because I wanted to believe it was working, because this belief overrode my ability to believe my own experience. It took so long to notice because I was too busy rushing around to take myself or my hair seriously, because I'd invested so much in it, both resources and time, and because it never crossed my mind to ask the right question. E my week of double conditioning and no shampoo has been 250 years of telling stories about what Cook means for this place. Our national hair has lost its lustre a long time ago, but we're too committed to the stories we've been telling and how much we've invested in them. Other people have worse hair, we say. We're balding anyway, we say. Let's just keep doing our thing and try to not notice we're not as shiny as we like to tell people we are, we say. Let's just look back to the golden days when things were already bad but we found a way to brush our hair and secure it with flashy clips so no one could tell except those who were closest to the damage, we say. We double up on conditioner. 
the product that doesn't get rid of the dirt, but that smooths and shines the hair. We love the stories that smooth things out, promise to untangle, make things, us, shine. We cover up smooth, lovely stories with more smooth, lovely stories. Cook is a hero, then he's a nice man trapped in the ideologies of his time. New Zealand is a racial paradise. Then it may not be a racial paradise, but hey, we're still making an effort. Then hey, we are deeply structurally, interpersonally, environmentally, destructively racist country, but at least the main perpetrators and figureheads of the crown and major corporations do say kia now. Even Vodafone is committed to the principles of the treaty. Apparently, we need to stop with the smoothing stories poured on top of the smoothing stories, massaged into the smoothing stories. Our national scalp is full of gunk. I warned you this was a terrible metaphor, but I know you're going to remember it. We need shampoo. It may create knots. It may feel like a backward step. It may not leave us feeling smooth and lovely. It may cost us more in the short term. We need to be prepared to get used to telling stories that will clean away the dirt. And hey, we're at the Auckland Writers' Festival. We believe in the stuff about the power of stories. As Tetiare from the novel Islander Shattered Dreams by Tahitian writer Chantal Spitz puts it, she washes away this dirt by writing. No, it won't happen overnight, but it will. It has to happen. Kia ora. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.